In uh, 1950, a young man went over, or joined the army and went overseas to fight in the Korean War. And one day in the midst of a battle, a bomb exploded not far from where he's standing and a fragment from that shell struck him in the head, knocked him out. At the time of the incident, this young man stood five feet, four inches tall. But that blow to the head triggered something in his body. The doctors are not sure what it was, but it triggered something. And something strange began to occur. So three years later, when the war was over and the young man returned home, he now stood six foot three. <laughs> Can you imagine the reaction of his family and friends? I mean, the last time they saw their loved one, he was only five foot four. Then he went overseas, and three years later, he comes back home, and now he stands six foot three. They must have been so surprised, so shocked. And why the surprise? Because they all figured at the age of 18, when he joined the army and went overseas, that he had finished growing. But they were wrong. Something unusual happened, and that boy came back home a much bigger man. I think God wants to create that same kind of shock and surprise in your life and mine. I think he wants to shake up the people around us because they cannot get over the growth that is occurring in your life and mine. I mean, all our friends and families, they've known us for years, and they think they got us all figured out. But then one day we meet Jesus, and we enter into a real covenant with him. And because of that relationship with him, it triggers something on the inside, something amazing something that sometimes we can't explain with words. But real changes begin to occur in your life and mine. And over the next three, four years, our family and friends are shaking their heads and saying, what happened? You're not the same anymore. Why, today I see you doing things bigger and better than I ever thought possible for you. It's that same kind of shock and surprise that people witnessed in the life of the Apostle Paul. I mean, you talk about the most unlikely convert to Christianity. The one who persecuted the church is now preaching for Jesus? Nobody saw that coming. Nobody would have predicted that. But to me, what's so amazing about the life of the Apostle Paul is not just the dramatic changes that occurred at the very beginning of his life with Jesus, but to see 30 years later, while he's sitting in a prison and writing this letter to the Philippians, that God continues to do remarkable things in and around his life. In fact, one of the key words that's used here in Philippians chapter 1 is a word that you find in verse 12 and again in verse 25. And depending on which translation you use, it might read serve to advance or you're making progress or you are growing. It's the same exact word that Dr. Luke uses when he tells the story of Jesus. You know, back there in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, he tells us about this day when the parents of Jesus, Joseph and Mary, they're bringing their son, their 12-year-old son, Jesus. They're bringing him down to Jerusalem to the temple to celebrate one of these major Jewish festivals. And for the next three days, we watched this 12-year-old sit there in the house of God talking to the rabbis, engaging with the religious scholars of the day. And they are all astonished by his knowledge and depth of insight. I mean, here's a kid who displays a perspective in life that you expect to see in somebody who's been living for 30 or 40 or 50 years. But to find that kind of maturity in a boy who's only 12 years old, it's just stunning. But to me, what is most surprising about that scripture is this. Three days later, when Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he heads back to Nazareth, he's going back home with Joseph and Mary, Luke makes this comment. Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says, and Jesus continued to grow. We're thinking, whoa, wait a minute, continued to grow? Hasn't he just shown us there at the age of 12 that he's already got it all down pat, that he already knows everything he needs to know? No. Even at 
with all the remarkable growth and development that's already occurred by the age of 12, yet the Bible now tells us over the next 18 years, and Jesus continued to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and in favor with his fellow man. He kept advancing. He continued to make progress. He continued to grow in all aspects of his life. We see that same kind of growth and development in the life of the Apostle Paul. I mean, just before he writes this letter, you think about where he's at at this point in his life. Here's this veteran missionary. He's already traveled all over the world, planting churches everywhere, performing miracles, writing scripture. Has he not seen it all and done it all? No. Even now, 30 years later, God continues to amaze Paul and all the people around him because of the remarkable things he's doing, the remarkable things he's doing in places and in people's lives that just literally leaves Paul and all the people around him shaking their heads. Man, I didn't think that could happen. I didn't think that kind of a change could occur. I mean, to see members of the Praetorian Guard, the elite soldiers of the Roman army, and to see members of Caesar's own household. That's what we're reading about here in the book of Philippians, seeing people like this now turning their hearts to Jesus. And all of this is happening at a time when the Bible tells us there in Acts chapter 28, for the past two years, Paul has been stuck in this tiny room where on a daily basis he can't move more than 15 feet in any direction. How can a revival like this be occurring when he's in a set of circumstances like this? Well, I think this passage of Scripture that we're going to study today, Philippians chapter 1, verses 19, 26, I think it gives us some answers to those questions. You know, through the years, I've heard different people talk about this, people who worked at Disney World, where on a daily basis, it's their role, their assignment to dress up like Mickey Mouse, you know, put on the costume, walk around the park, greet all the boys and girls, and take pictures with them. And every one of them will testify how amazed they are at the transformation that occurs in them when they put that costume on. I mean, before they put on that new identity, before they officially become Mickey Mouse, they just go out in the park and walk around as themselves. And people don't even see you. No one notices. There's no response at all. But you put that costume on, and now you walk around Disney World, and boys and girls come running from all different directions, leaping with joy and excitement and hugging you and holding on and never wanting to let go. And suddenly the confidence and joy you feel because of the joy and excitement you're bringing to them is indescribable. I mean, if you're really doing this the right way, if you've really been trained properly, you don't just put on the costume. No, when you put, on, when you put yourself in that Mickey Mouse outfit, you are now expected to act like Mickey Mouse. I mean, the way you walk, the way you play and dance and interact with all the boys and girls, every gesture you make... You don't do it the way you normally would have done it. No, now you do it the way Mickey Mouse would do it. When you put on that Mickey Mouse outfit, you now become like Mickey Mouse. Now, all of this is just a masquerade. It's just a fake identity. Yet, on a daily basis, putting on that fake identity, the impact that it makes upon the people who wear that costume, it's immense because you are not you anymore. You've taken on a whole new look, and in taking on that new look, you now become like somebody else. Well, that experience is nothing compared to what the Apostle Paul is trying to describe here. Isn't it interesting? All the letters that the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament, he writes at least 13 different letters, but in all those letters, not once does he ever use the word Christian. That's intriguing to me. So how is it the Apostle Paul describes what it's like to belong to Jesus? What does it really mean to be one of his disciples? Well, his favorite way of describing this experience is with a tiny phrase. He uses it 165 times, 21 times in this letter to the Philippians. 
his favorite way of talking about what it means to be a Christian, he says, you are now in Christ. When you become a Christian, you take on a brand new identity. Jesus now covers you, covers your sin, your shame, your weakness. And I mean, he covers you in a real way, not a fictitious way, like putting on that Mickey Mouse costume. No, when you enter into this new identity, you enter into this new life with Jesus, this union with him, you take on your real identity, your true God-given identity. You now become the man, the woman that God always wanted you to be. On a daily basis, to be a Christian means you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You clothe yourself in him, meaning you are now covered with all of his blessings, covered with all of his benefits. Now every day you dress yourself up in his attitudes, his mindset, his way of seeing things. And as you begin to do that on a daily basis, over a long period of time, you actually become like him. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, how does all this actually happen? How does all this actually work? Again, I think this scripture gives us some answers to those questions. So look at this with me. Philippians chapter 1, and I just want to look at a couple verses. Let's start with verse 19. The Apostle Paul writes, for I know. Do you hear the confidence? I mean, this is remarkable to me. When you stop to think about where he's at right now as he's writing these words, Right now, he's in a very stressful situation. I mean, I'd, I'd be in a state of panic because he is about to stand trial before Caesar, and he knows the outcome probably won't be good. I mean, with all the talk that the Apostle Paul's been doing about Jesus being Lord, more than likely, he's going to be labeled a traitor to Rome. And as a result, he will be tortured, and then he will be executed. That's a lot to have in your mind. That's a lot to worry about. He's not worried at all. Where is this confidence coming from? Well, listen, he says, for I know that because of your prayers. See, Paul hasn't just been praying for the Philippians. He's been asking the Philippians to pray for him. So because of your prayers, and number two, because of God's provision of the Spirit. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, but notice how he's described here. God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus. In other words, to have the Holy Spirit living and working inside of you is just like having Jesus living and working inside of you because the Holy Spirit has the same personality that he does so Paul says because of your prayers because of the work of the Holy Spirit in my life I know that all this stuff that is happening to me being in prison having to stand trial before Caesar somehow some way this is all going to turn out for my deliverance in other words one of the blessings of being a Christian is you know you are never alone you have the Holy Spirit but it's one thing to have the Holy Spirit. It's something else to allow the Holy Spirit to have you. Do you understand the difference? How do we allow God's Spirit to be more and more of an influence upon our life? How do we create the space so that He's allowed to take a more active role in our lives? Well, we find two answers to that in this verse. Number one, through the prayers of other people. And number two, through the challenges we face. See, right now, the Apostle Paul is in a crisis. How did he get there? God brought him there. God put him in this challenging situation that Paul knows, as talented as he is, as resourceful as he is, man, this is way beyond me. This is way beyond my natural abilities. I'm not going to be able to pull this off unless God helps me. Here comes an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to step in and do something special for him. I think God does the same thing with us. Sometimes God brings us into situations that's bigger than anything we've ever had to deal with before, and we're thinking, whoa, this is way beyond me. But it's not beyond God. 
here's how this works. Think of it like this. Think of a balloon. And the balloon is filled with air, and yet the balloon may still be kind of small. So you begin to put more air into the balloon, and what happens to the balloon? It, it, it expands. It grows. It gets bigger. So it is when we step into one of those challenging situations and there's this huge gap between what I'm going to be able to do, what God's going to be able to do. Well, now here's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to stand in the gap. And He begins to breathe into our souls. And He begins to expand His strength and His wisdom and His composure. And in the midst of that crisis, He makes Jesus big in us. Now, every one of you here, you can testify to this. You've all had this experience, right? Somebody says to you, hey, I know you. You're not a public speaker. But boy, that talk you just gave, that was incredible. How did you pull that off? Or how did you ever make it through that surgery? Man, I'd be scared to death to go through something like that. But the smile on your face and the peace that I see radiating from your heart, where is that all coming from? Or that relative of yours, I'm sorry, got to be honest, they're awfully cranky, so obnoxious, always mean and critical. Where do you find the strength to be so patient with them? I mean, every time I see you working with them, you're so loving, you're so kind. How are you doing that? And in every one of those moments, you know what you do? You just smile. Because <laughs> words can't describe it. I mean, you know what's happening there. It's real, but you also know it's not you. It's someone else who's working in you. And that's someone else. It's the Lord. Paul continues his testimony. Verse 20. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that on that day when I have to stand trial before Caesar that I will in no way be ashamed. I don't want to bring any kind of shame on Jesus. So I'm praying, and I know through your prayers, I want to have the sufficient courage, and it's expression means I, I'm bold, frank, I don't hide anything, I don't hold anything back. I want to tell the full truth about Jesus. So I'm praying in that day, in fact, in all life situations, I want Jesus to always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, every situation of life, my focus is not on me, it's on Jesus, how in this set of circumstances can I help others to see and appreciate the greatness of Jesus? So the key word here in verse 20 is this word exalted. It literally means to magnify. Well, how do you magnify God? How does a human being, a mere human, magnify the Lord? Well, think about the stars. The stars are so much bigger than that telescope, and yet the telescope magnifies the stars by bringing them closer. And now you begin to see with a clarity and you begin to appreciate the greatness and glory of that star because of that close-up look through the telescope. Well, that's what God wants to be able to do through your life and mine. We, have, we all have people in our world for whom Jesus is this, he's this distant figure. He's this vague person who lived 2,000 years ago and he's just unfamiliar to them and hard to think about and hard to connect with. But now through your life and mine, we give them a closer view through our attitudes and our actions and our loving way that we treat other people, now they begin to catch a glimpse of just how great and good He actually is. Here's an example. Shane Claiborne tells about a little boy that he met in India. He had just recently given his heart to Jesus. And it was his birthday, and Shane wanted to help him celebrate. So it was 100 degrees that day. The boy was out here in the street. This was their playground. He and all the other kids playing out here in the street. And so Shane got him an ice cream cone. The little boy had never had a treat like this before. So when he handed him the ice cream, Shane said his eyes got real big, big and he was just shaking with excitement. He said, for me? That's for me? Yeah, it's yours. And then what he did next was so surprising. He immediately turned to all the other kids out there in the street and said, hey, everybody, we got ice cream. 
everybody here can have a lick. And instantly, all those boys and girls came running in his direction. Well, the boy said, hey, well, wait a minute. Each will get a turn. And he carefully lined up all the boys and girls. And then slowly, one by one, he went down the line and said, your turn, your turn, your turn. And every one of them got a big lick of ice cream. When he finally got down to the end of the line, he came back to Shane and said, okay, Shane, it's your turn. <laughs> Shane says, I had this thing about spit, saliva. <laughs> so he said, I just pretended to take a lick and said, mmm, thank you. But finally, after everybody else had had their turn, the little boy took what little ice cream he had left and now finally had some for himself. And Shane said, I was just astounded. Here's this kid. He's only been a Christian for a short time, yet already I could see the spirit of Jesus in him because that little boy did with his ice cream cone what Jesus would have done with an ice cream cone. Here's something wonderful. Here's something delightful. I don't want to keep this to myself. So in that simple act of sharing his ice cream, that little boy was magnifying Jesus. Now we come to verse 21. And to me, this is the verse that just says it all. It sums it all up. The Apostle Paul says, here's what living is all about. He says, for me, to live is Christ. And to die, it gets even better. He'll use the expression, verse 23, it just gets better by far. To die is gain. Why? Because you enter into a perfect world where nothing ever disappoints again. And now you have an opportunity to see and know Jesus in a way that wasn't possible here. About a month ago, my wife and I were down in Montgomery, Alabama, visiting our son. And uh, one afternoon, we decided to go out and do some shopping. Now, for my wife, shopping means going to stores like Hobby Lobby, Home Goods, Kirkland's. And though she did not get a thing for herself that afternoon, I could tell by the way she slowly moved through the store that she could stay in each one of those stores for two and three hours at a time, just slowly checking things out because she loves what they have to sell. For me, it's painful. <laughs> Being in those stores is just boring. I mean, after five minutes, I've seen everything I need to see. I am ready to leave. But then we came to a store called Books a Million. And suddenly, I came alive. And again, I didn't get a thing for myself that day, but I, honestly, I could have stayed in that store for the rest of the day. I mean, here's something I care about. Here's something that really excites me. I love to read books. Well, that's the kind of emotion and excitement that is being described in this verse. What is it that makes the Apostle Paul just come alive? It's seeing and knowing and talking to and just spending time with Jesus. Now, if you don't know Jesus all that well, you may be honestly thinking to yourself, I don't get it. What's the big deal? Why is that so exciting? So let me explain it like this. Let's imagine that you grew up, you grew up in a really bad home. Your parents have always been mean and critical every day, just putting you down. You've always been a disappointment to them, and they've always been a disappointment to you. And one day your dad and mom are gone, and you decide to go up in the attic. You've never been allowed to go up there before. They always said off limits, but you know dad and mom's going to be gone a long time, and you've just always been curious, what's up there? So you go up in the attic, and you find this big trunk, and you wipe off the dust, and you open it up, and inside you find the papers, the papers that prove you were abducted as a baby. This home you're in, this is not your real home. These people who claim to be your parents, they are not your real parents. They are criminals. They're the ones who abducted you when you were yay high. And through those papers, you learn your real mom is this famous artist from Paris. Your real dad is this Nobel Prize winning scientist who earlier in his life also happened to be a professional baseball player. And you're thinking, of course, this all makes sense. This explains it all. 
I knew I wasn't a piece of scum. I mean, I could just feel it. I knew there was something special about me. I am extraordinary. And then you realize your real parents are still alive. They're fabulously wealthy. And they've got this huge inheritance waiting for you. On that day, when you learn the real story about yourself, who you actually are, who you actually belong to, does it not change how you see everything? On that day when you open up the trunk and you learn your real identity and where you actually came from, does it, now change, does it not now change how you see your capacities and your capabilities now that you're aware of all the resources that are available to you, now that you understand the future and the destiny that lies before you? Does it not change how you look at everything in this world? I mean, suddenly your whole life feels brand new. That's exactly the kind of discovery that Paul made on the day when he met Jesus. Suddenly, he just came alive. And from that moment on, he saw everything in his world with a whole new set of eyes. Is that not our story? Opening up this book is like opening up the trunk. Here are the papers that show us who we really are and who we actually belong to. We were made by God, and we were made for a life with Him. And it's only in making that connection with the Lord that we discover our real identity. We were made for a life with Jesus. Let's pray. God, my prayer today is I want, I want every one of us here to see and know and just appreciate the greatness of Jesus. God, I want us to begin to realize how wonderful, how remarkable, how awesome is the life that we could enjoy with Him. So Lord, my prayer is this, open our hearts to the gospel. God, let us see the glory of Jesus and let us see and appreciate the glory of what He has done for us. And God, I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the moment that every one of us as Christians always looks forward to. This moment in time on a Sunday morning when we can come together as a church and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because right now, in a very special way, we have an opportunity to magnify Jesus. To just put the spotlight on Him. To highlight and emphasize His greatness especially how we see that greatness displayed in the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross, the sacrifice that changes everything for us. If you're visiting this morning, I want to make you aware of how we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. I'm going to pray, and then the men and women are going to pass the tray. So as they pass the tray, just take a piece of bread, take one of the cups, and just hold on to it. And then after everybody's received the elements, we're going to stand together and read from Philippians chapter 2. And then together as a church, together as the body of Christ, we will eat the bread and drink the cup and celebrate Jesus as our Savior. Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to remember Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. God, our prayer, our desire, is that Jesus would be magnified in our celebration of him. 
And God, we partake in his name. Amen.